All right, well, I invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and make your way to Hebrews chapter 6. Last time that we're going to say Hebrews chapter 6, unless something catastrophic and unexpected happens this morning. It's good to be together even with all the rain outside, kind of a blustery, yucky morning. And uh, just thinking this morning how God sends the rain on the just and the unjust, and it's a sign of His mercy. We're actually called to love our enemies uh, in, in the same way that God would show mercy to people who hate Him uh, by sending the very rain they need to provide food for them and uh, to care for them. And so whenever the new rains come, it's just a reminder of the mercy of God uh, that He pours out on the just and the unjust. Well, if you have ever in your life doubted whether or not God can be trusted, this message is for you. Does that not fit everybody in the room? If you've ever doubted in your life whether or not God can be trusted, uh, this is a message for you. It's a message for those who might have ever wavered in their faith and unbelief. If you've ever shrunk back at times in your confidence and the trustworthiness of God, the plan of God, the timing of God, His wisdom. If your faith has been shadowed, uh, shattered or rattled, uh, maybe shaken, perhaps even as you sit here today, you've just come through or you're in the midst of a circumstance where you would say, my faith is shaken. Uh, headwinds have come against me. Uh, doubts have crept in. Uh, there's difficulty that's causing me to, to feel as though my footing is being lost in the Christian life. Perhaps you have fears that just will not stop. They beleaguer you and your soul is filled with doubts. Perhaps you struggle with assurance that you are saved or you will remain saved. And if that is a struggle for you, then this is a message from God to you. I praise God for this message in Hebrews. Uh, You need this message today. Uh, I need this message today. And the Hebrews needed this message. That's why we all get it, was because they needed it. And uh, this pastor is lovingly providing it for them. And so when your faith is struggling, uh, the question is, what do you do at that moment? What do you do in the, the Christian life when you find my faith is weak, my faith is struggling? Certainly, we've just been called to exercise all diligence, so we've been called to do something. We've been given a responsibility to pursue the Lord, Uh, but how do we actually do that? Uh, How do you grow in faith when when your footing feels like it's being washed out from underneath you? For the author of Hebrews, you you incline your ear to the voice of Christ. Uh, You ingest His Word, and you depend upon it, and then you obey what it says. Over and over through this letter, you cling to Jesus as your great high priest. You cling to Jesus in the confession of faith. But practically speaking, if your faith needs to be strengthened, it becomes strengthened in the exercise of it. Okay, Faith becomes strengthened in the exercise of it. It's why James would say that that you're going to grow in your endurance uh, through a trial as you exercise faith faith. Faith grows as it's tested and you depend upon the Lord and you continue to exercise it. Your faith begins to deepen in confidence in the trustworthiness of God. But how do you grow in the exercise of your faith? So we just said, oh, you just need to have more faith in the Lord and then that begets additional faith and then that begets additional faith. Well, well, how do, I, how do I kind of prime the pump? How do we get things going here? Do we, how do we crank up the faith? Well, as a songwriter would say, how I've proved him or and or. It's someone who's, who's begun to understand the character and trustworthiness of God afresh and how that applies to their very issues of life. See, today's message, the author of Hebrews is addressing the very issue of of what to do when your faith is weak and you need fortification. And how he approaches it, very simply, is to back them up and reground their faith in the character of God. What he shows us is that the starting point for addressing your weak faith is not actually with you, but it's with God. It's oftentimes you think, man, I have a, I have a weak faith problem. 
And so now I'm going to try and assess why my faith is so weak and try to troubleshoot here and work things out. And certainly there's areas you see you're distrusting the Lord. You need to turn from that and repent. But ultimately, that lack of faith is going to be strengthened by seeing afresh the character and the trustworthiness of God. Because faith ultimately does not originate from you. It originates from God and it is sustained by him. So what we find here is the author of Hebrews taking these people back to the object of their faith. I titled this message, A Sure and Steady Anchor for the Soul, and uh, you can take notes on the back of your worship guide if you choose or elsewhere. Essentially, what we're going to find here in uh, this section of Scripture is this author taking the believers back in time to how God worked with Abraham. And he's going to say, as you consider what God did with Abraham, it's going to produce strength for your faith. And so here's an outline for you this morning, if you want to follow along with an outline. Take confidence in the God of Abraham. That's his main idea here in this whole section from 13 to 20. I want you to take confidence, fresh hope in the God of Abraham. First, as you see God's faithfulness to him, when that happens, your faith is strengthened to persevere. And ultimately, this results in security and comfort. It's really kind of just a a narrative flow. It's a little bit of a different outline than we normally use. And it's just walking through the flow of argument of how this passage works. God's dealings with Abraham help us understand our own salvation and gives us mighty confidence in God's unrelenting faithfulness toward us in Jesus Christ. So this is the connection point. God's treatment with Abraham is going to help us understand our own salvation and gives us mighty confidence in God's unrelenting faithfulness toward us through Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember, the author has just addressed spiritual complacency. And so, in chapter 6, uh, verse 11, he's encouraging them, I want you, each one, to show the same earnestness, this diligence, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So, I want you to exercise diligence in your faith so that you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, you're listening to the voice of Christ and seeking to apply it so that you now come to full assurance that you are His. And I want that to endure, he says in verse 11, until the end, so that you may not become sluggish, you may not become lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So, he's saying, I want you now to come to to full assurance. I want your faith to be strengthened. And he says there in verse 12, I want you to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so it immediately comes to mind is, whom shall we imitate? We know who we're not supposed to imitate. Uh, That generation of Jews who came out of Egypt, we've been seeing them as the example of what not to do over and over, right? They hardened their heart in unbelief. Uh, They saw the wonders of God, they praised Him, and then they turned away from Him. Uh, They distrusted the Lord repeatedly and and argued and grumbled against Him. And so the the one that we're to imitate, uh, this person that we're to learn from, is Father Abraham. And so the author begins in verse 13 and he says, For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly To the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. My friends, and you think about how it is that as a Christian, you are going to remain faithful to the end. How is it that you're going to persevere? How do you live the Christian life and not 
throw in the towel when there's things that come against you that would cause you to be tempted to do that. You're to think about God's faithfulness to Abraham, and very tangibly, that is to strengthen your faith. And so our very first point this morning is is that you are to take confidence in the God of Abraham as you see God's faithfulness to him. I want you to think just for a minute about Abraham's life. And uh, right here in chapter 6, Abraham has been mentioned briefly in chapter 2, but this is kind of the first time that the author deals with him. Uh, And he begins to talk about when God made a promise to Abraham. And so uh, what I want to do is actually take a trip back to Genesis for a little bit, and I want to see this unfold. And then we're going to come back to Hebrews, and we're going to see how the author is using it. So uh, if you want to keep your finger, we'll be back later in Hebrews, but turn it with me over to Genesis chapter 12. And I want to see, uh, or just unfold for us, how it is that God made this promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now we come to that and we're very familiar with Father Abraham. After all, he's the patriarch. Uh, He's the father of the nation Israel. Uh, So this all makes sense to us. But to understand he's being called from Ur, the land of the Chaldees, Abraham this, at this point, Abram was a pagan. Okay? He, he was someone who had worshipped false gods. Uh, there was no nation of Israel yet. And the Lord comes to him at age 75. And he says, I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave your country, your kindred, your father's house, everyone you know, to the land that I will show you. Verse 2, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4 says, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So I want you to just picture this for a moment right now. Okay, Abram at this point is closer to the grave than the cradle. He's 75 years old. And he gets a message about a life, a life change, a move to a new place. I mean, can you imagine the discussion with family? Him and Sarai are barren. Uh, she's a few years younger than him, but she's past childbearing years. And so Abram comes to his, his kindred, his family, and he says, Hey, I'm moving to another country. Why is that? Well, we're going to be a great nation. In fact, all the, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through me and my descendants. And you're thinking, uh, we need to have a little talk here about how these things work. You're past childbearing age. You're even kind of past the prime of life in terms of energy. I mean, maybe if you were a young man, you had a bunch of kids, maybe you could go have the ambitions to start a nation. But at 75... And so Abram gets up in verse 4, and he went as the Lord had told him. He went. He got up and left. The Lord said, I want you to go. I'm going to make a great land out of you, a great nation. I'm going to bless the whole world through you, even though there's no way you could possibly see how I'm going to do this. And Abram got up and he left. He left his livelihood, his heritage, his gods, his customs, his kindred, and his father's house, never to return again. And so God makes a promise, and Abram obeys. We think, okay, great, and Abram is going to be an example of our faith. Uh, So let's see how, how thoroughly trusting Abram is of God's faithfulness to him. Well, he gets tested. There's a famine coming. So he's in the land of Canaan. There's a famine in in verse 10 of chapter 12. He goes down to Egypt to get food. And as you know the story, uh, he decides to concoct a plan where Sarai will be presented not as his wife, but as his sister. Why? Verse 13. So that my life may be spared for your sake. See, Abram already has the promise of God. He's already been told a great nation is going to be made through him, but he gets into a circumstance where he kind of double clutches. Right, he decides, I, need to, I just need to kind of 
I need to get my hands on things here. I know God has promises, but I need to kind of have a plan where I protect and I preserve and I make sure that I handle things my way. Goes on and continues, and uh, he has various opportunities to trust the Lord. And in Genesis 13, obviously the Lord preserves him in Egypt and his wife. Genesis 13, he's trusting the Lord where uh, he prefers Lot in the decision about who gets the better land. So he's trusting the Lord to provide for him. The Lord comes back in the end of verse, or chapter 13 and he reaffirms his promise to Abram. He's strengthening his faith. He says in verse 14 of chapter 13, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. So the Lord is, is graciously taking Abram. He gave him a promise. Abram acted in faith. Then he starts to grow weak and what's the Lord do? He comes back and he gives him another reminder and he reaffirms that covenant. So then we come in and, and we get to chapter uh, 15, and the Lord, yet again, is affirming to Abram. Uh, he's confused, and he's uh, thinking, okay, I'm childless, childless, so maybe Eliezer of Damascus will be my heir. Chapter 15, verse 2, and the Lord says, no, listen, I'm going to give you an heir. You just trust me. I'm going to give you your very own descendant, and I'm going to make a nation out of you. So Abram continues, and... What happens in chapter 16? He falters again in faith. Right? Sarai begins to get fearful that maybe there's something wrong with her. Her womb has been closed her entire life. Uh, Even before uh, she'd passed the age of childbearing, now she's past the the age of childbearing, so she's kind of uh, doubly under uh, what she would view as a curse. She gets fearful that she's going to mess up God's promise to Abram, so she concocts a plan of how they'll take matters into their own hands. And they'll have the nation. And so so Abram again stumbles, uh, this time pretty big, with Hagar and bearing the son Ishmael. And so then now in in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, uh, Abram is now 99 years old. So he's been waiting on this promise for 24 years. 24 new years have gone by with no baby. 24 birthdays, 24 summers and winters and new school years and baby season, 24 years of enduring. And the Lord comes back and he reaffirms this covenant that he's making with Abram and he strengthens his faith and he's letting him know that this covenant that he's making is is going to be with his son named Isaac. Abram continues on, flipping a few pages over, gets to chapter 20 with Abimelech, and this is Egypt 2.0, right? Very same issue. The Lord has promised, I've got to have a kid, so so no one is going to take me out until the kid comes. And yet here I am again in a threatening circumstance, and again, I'm, I'm fearful. The Lord keeps affirming, he keeps telling me, I'm going to provide this covenant, I'm going to provide a seed, I'm going to provide an offspring. The Lord protected Abram and Sarai. And finally, after all of Abram's weakness, the Lord visits his wife Sarah in chapter 21. And look at what the word says. The Lord visited Sarah as he said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. See, the word of God that he had promised that Abraham and Sarah had no possible way of seeing how this promise could ever come true was not only fulfilled, but it was fulfilled exactly the way the Lord said it would happen. Abraham's tried to preserve it. Sarah tried to preserve it in a lack of faith. And yet the Lord continually brought it about the exact way that he desired So, new baby in the home. Uh, Probably had a few awkward dates at the park where someone said to Isaac, oh, great-grandpa came to the park with you today. He said, no, that's my dad. He's 108. Uh, It's not the normal age for a new father, but Abraham has Isaac in his old age. 
This is the son of promise. This is the son that he's been waiting for for so long. And then in chapter 22, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And you think, has this guy not been tested enough? Has he not endured enough already? In terms of all of the, the challenges that would come against his faith? I mean, the Lord called him to go and to leave the land of Haran. And it says, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right there in that very moment, according, according to Romans. He believed and he was justified. And he, he's given this promise. He doesn't ultimately waver in unbelief. Although he struggles along the way, God finally provides him with the son. And now you imagine, here's your teenage son of promise that is the future nation. And the Lord comes to you and he says, Abraham, I want your son. I want your son. And it's a test. And so this is the backdrop for the passage today. That the Lord uh, made a promise to Abraham that he believed. He struggled along the way in various lapses of faith. Ultimately, he laid Isaac down on the, on the altar, and then after that test is complete, that test of faith, the Lord comes in verse 16 and says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. See, he comes back now after this test, and he not only repeats the blessing, but he repeats it with an oath. He swears to Abraham. And so this is the exact picture that the author of Hebrews has in mind. So I want you to turn back to Hebrews now, and we're going to see how this strengthens the faith of these dear saints who are, are really struggling right now to trust the Lord and all the opposition they're facing to believe God. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And so this is uh, lifted directly out of Genesis 22. So we have God making all kinds of promises to Abraham, starting in Genesis 12. This specific quote is coming from Genesis chapter 2. So this is right after Abraham obeyed by putting Isaac on the altar, the Lord comes now and he swears an oath. What we see here is God making a promise. Now, when you think about what it means to relate to God, you've got to understand God is a promise maker. Right? And God is a promise keeper. Titus 1-2, God who never lies promised eternal life before the ages began. He didn't just say he'll have it, he actually promised it. There was a commitment behind that. Walt Kaiser would say the, the grand theme of the Bible is the promised plan of God. What's he trying to highlight? The significance that we see God promising things from the very first page of Scripture all the way to the very end. Telling his people this is exactly what I'm going to do and you can rely upon it. And so Hebrews says when he swore, he swore by himself. Okay, He swore not... Not at Abraham, that would mean something different. He swore to Abraham by himself. Well, why did he swear by himself? Look down at verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So here's a truism. People are generally not trustworthy. People are generally unreliable. So how do we solve that? Well, we make people take oaths. Right? Before you take the witness stand, what are you going to have to do? You're going to take an oath. Certain areas of public service, before you take on the responsibility, what do you need to do? You need to swear an oath. Why? Well, because we found that people's word isn't good enough. There needs to be some kind of further confirmation or earnest money. Probably the, the easiest way to see this would be if you've ever tried to conduct business on Craigslist. I remember my first experience, I was a seller, and so we rearranged a schedule to be available for the buyer to come and pick something up from the house, and 
the call was, oh, I can't be there at 8. Actually, can you wait a few more hours? I'll be there at noon. Well, sure, we'll wait around. Noon comes around, noon comes and goes, and we find out, well, hey, actually, some things came up, but I'll be there tomorrow to pick it up, right? Okay, so we'll change the work schedule again tomorrow, and what happens? We decided we actually didn't want it after all. I thought, oh, well, that's probably a bad experience. You're just the seller. It's probably better being a buyer. So, okay, we're going to buy a sofa on Craigslist. Uh, yep, okay, it's confirmed. I'll be there in three hours. I'm going to go rent a truck. I'll go pick up the sofa. I show up. Sofa's gone. What happened? Well, somebody came actually ahead of you to buy it, and buyers are pretty unreliable on Craigslist, so we decided that we would just sell it to the person who came. Right? There's this idea that if, if you don't really have any skin in the game, you don't really have anything to lose, you make commitments all over the place. And you can break commitments. Why? Because it doesn't really cost you anything unless you're taking an oath, unless you're swearing something, unless there's some kind of pledge and guarantee. Hughes says, So great is the general unreliability of human utterance that the use of an oath has become common practice when a statement or promise is made which is intended to be absolutely firm and binding. Humans take oaths. In fact, Abram himself uh, took an oath with the king of so uh, Sodom, and he said, I lifted my hand to the Lord. Now, uh, he was saying there, I, I basically swear on the name of the Lord. And God would tell his people to swear on his name, Deuteronomy 6, 13. He said, it is the Lord your God who you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So humans need to take oaths because we're unreliable creatures. Right? We're promise breakers. We're covenant breakers. And so the oath brings some skin in the game. But what do you do if you're God? Right, everything in Hebrews has been about Christ being superior, Christ being greater. So normally the guarantee is I swear on something greater than who I am, but if you're God and you swear on something other than yourself, you actually just diminished it. Or you just introduce something that's fallible or something that, that has an end, something that is finite. And so what we find in Scripture, believe it or not, over and over is the Lord swearing by his own name. Isaiah 45, 23, I by myself have sworn. Jeremiah 22, 5, I swear by myself. And so right there in Genesis 22, the Lord is saying, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. What is he doing? He's saying not, um, I need to guarantee my word because it's not trustworthy. But he's saying, you're used to having someone swear an oath <clears throat> because their word is unreliable. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how sure I am by swearing an oath. And the best thing that I could swear upon is my own namesake and my own reputation. And I want you to be able to bank on the fact that I am trustworthy. Think about it. There is no one greater, the text says. No one greater. Uh, the reason why he made a promise to Abraham and swore by himself is because he had no one greater by whom to swear. He's unrivaled. He's the sovereign. He's self-existent. There's nothing that could ever threaten his word or his promise. And so therefore, all he has to do is swear by himself because of his power, it could never be broken. And so what is it that he swears to Abram? Abraham now? Excuse me. I always get this confused once I start mixing them up. Uh, verse 14, surely I will bless you and I will multiply you. Surely, indeed, most assuredly. Now I want you to think about this for just a minute for Abraham. He's just undergone the most terrifying experience of his life. I try to imagine it this week. It's, it's tough to really imagine, right? First of all, just to think of the character of God that he would ask someone to sacrifice their own son. I mean, you talk about a traumatic experience both for him and Isaac. I mean, the blade is raised, right, at that moment. And you begin to think about what, what the challenge of that test is. There's no going back. Right? I mean, it's not like you can undo killing someone. Uh, once he's been slain, he would be slain. And so this is the most severe test imaginable. And we think about kind of the emotional relationship between a father and son. That's appropriate. And certainly that was a key part of it. But you understand it was even beyond that. It was every blessing that God had promised was, was to come through that son. 
every future hope, everything that you had banked your life upon. In many decisions, we can hedge our bet a little bit. You can kind of dip your toe into the water before committing. But once the knife goes through, he is a goner. And so Abram obeys. Abraham obeys. And the Lord comes and he says, I want you to know for absolute certain, the fact that I just delivered Isaac is proof positive that I'm going to bless you. Proof positive that I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. And so Abraham, it says in verse 15, having patiently awaited, obtained the promise. Now, you know Hebrews, you're saying, I mean, that sounds a little bit weird because Hebrews 11 actually says that all the saints of old, including Abraham, died in faith and they had not yet received the things promised. Rather, they saw them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. So what is it that Abraham patiently waited for? Well, he's talking about the the promise of the son he received and all the waiting that he did up to that moment. So what did Abraham not see? Well, he never got to see the land of Canaan with God's people in it. Never got to see the Messiah in the flesh. And so when you read this, what I want you to connect here about Abraham having patiently waited is back up in verse 12, where the author said, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He said, I want you to contemplate Abraham. And Abraham is to be an example for you as you would persevere in your faith. This is the model that we follow. He is our pattern. He's the guy who we imitate. So what did Abraham need? Well, Abraham needed endurance. He didn't receive what he was told he would be given by God immediately. How is it that this helps those saints that Hebrews is addressed to? Well, we already looked when we started the letter. Many of them believed Christ and life didn't get better. It got a lot worse. They trusted in Christ and they had the seizure of their property. They trusted in Christ and they lost their job. They trusted in Christ and they were cut off from their family. And so if you were in that spot, part of your temptation to distrust Christ would be, I put my faith in God who said he's going to provide for me. He said he's going to never leave me or forsake me. And actually, as I'm looking at life right now, I don't see how this all adds up. Because the daily circumstances of my life are really hard and difficult. And frankly, God doesn't feel very near. God doesn't feel like he's for me. God doesn't feel like he's accomplishing anything good. So when that happens, Abraham is our example. See, Abraham had to endure. Trusting God. Each year, more gray hair or less hair on the top of his head. Each year thinking, man, I just don't see how this is going to come about. Even stumbling along the way with Egypt, oops, distrusting the Lord. Hagar, oops, distrusting the Lord. Abimelech, oops, failing again and distrusting the Lord. Yet what Abraham exhibits is that even through those failures, when God speaks to him, he takes him at his word and he trusts the Lord. See, ultimately, although he wavers at times, his confidence is that he cannot determine truth about God from the circumstances around him. He can't determine what God is or is not doing simply by his assessment that he can see through his eyes. He doesn't trust that he can evaluate whether or not God will bring about his promises through what he can see. And so Abram, Abraham becomes an example of faith. Now, this is the one who gets the promise. Who gets the promise? The one who endures. So, how is it that you persevere? Well, you persevere by believing what God has said he would do based upon his trustworthy character. So, that it is how that Abraham patiently waited and how he obtained the promise. And I would just ask you, as you think about imitating Abraham's faith, asking Where is it that God is calling you to trust him that you don't actually see yet with your eyes? Let me just begin to think about how many areas of your life right now 
you consider what God has promised and you consider your own experience and you say they don't line up and I am doubting the Lord. The question is not are you, it's, it's where. I mean, this is what we are prone to do, to take our eyes off of the promise. And the Lord, just like Abraham, gives us many tests along the way. I'm amazed sometimes how small of a test it takes to disrupt my peace. How small of a test it takes to disrupt my confidence. See, our problem is that we want to see ahead what God is going to do before he does it. And really, all that we have is his character and his promise. Think about how easy it would have been for Abraham to endure if he could have seen how it was all going to end. I mean, can you imagine? Imagine if the Lord came to Abraham and said, all right, let me show you Jesus of Nazareth. I'm going to show you into the future what happens when he comes. He's a real person. He's going to go to a cross. He's going to die for the sins of his people. I'm going to show you the 12 apostles. I'm going to show you Pentecost. I'm going to show you the birth of the early church. I'm going to show you the Protestant Reformation. I'm going to show you uh, what happens at the Great Awakening. I'm even going to show you this, Abraham. There's going to be 100 people gathered in a room in Albany, Oregon, looking back to Father Abraham, and they're going to be strengthened by the example of your faith right now in the midst of this trial. Oh, that'd be pretty easy. You mean me right now? It's going to have all of that effect if I endure in faith? No. He's struggling with the fact that he's in Canaan and there's a food shortage and he's got to go to Egypt and he's getting older and so is Sarai and they have God's promise, but things aren't really lining up. I mean, you understand the reality of what he actually had in front of his face compared to what God was going to do. They're radically different. Now, Abraham's promise was kind of a one and done, so... Uh, Your life is not going to have the ripple effect that Abraham's did. But the principle still remains. That Abraham fixed his hope on the character of God, and it says he patiently waited. So what does it do for us when we look at Abraham? Well, we see how God worked, and it strengthens our faith so that we might persevere. See, he connects us now in verse 17, and he says, So, when thus, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. I was just floored by this language. He wanted... He desired to show us his purpose, his unchanging character. Friends, the way the Lord has designed your life to work according to his word is to display his character and to show you the way that he operates. See, it's to show you that that his character is absolutely unchangeable and you can take him at his word. And so he guaranteed it with an oath, not because his word needed any strengthening, but as we said earlier, for our sake. Who are the heirs of the promise? All right, first it was Isaac. That was the first heir of the promise. Then it was Jacob, not Esau. Then the list starts to get a little bit unwieldy. Because you, all, you come all the way to Galatians 3.29 and it says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring Heirs according to the promise. You inherit the same promise that God gave to Abraham. So you begin to realize, wow, there was so much happening there. Abraham saw part of it, but he couldn't have seen all of it. The fact that God's making a promise to Abraham right there, that is going to be the same promise that ministers to you and me, Gentiles across the globe, 3,500 years later. So what is it that God... God's promise to Abraham have to do with your relationship with Christ? Well, you're to see by two unchangeable things, verse 18, his word and his oath. That's what the unchangeable things are, I believe. It's, it's a little tricky to interpret, but I believe it's his word and his oath. So his promise and then him swearing on that promise. By those two unchangeable things, we who have fled to refuge might have mighty encouragement. We who have fled to him for refuge. 
This is the language that would come out of the Old Testament when a manslayer would kill someone by manslaughter and they would flee to a city for safety so that they wouldn't be killed. You see people uh, fleeing to the horns of the altar and gripping them for safety. The idea here is that if you came to Christ in repentance and faith, it was because you saw that your soul was without hope, that you were lost. That you desperately needed someone who could come and rescue you from your sinful condition, and you found security in the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. You trusted him with your very soul. You fled to him for refuge. And now, throughout life, what happens? Well, there are many things that assail your faith. Right? Satan, in his hate and spite, is, is sending flaming arrows specifically to attempt to extinguish your faith in God. And so the author here is saying that when you understand God's word and his oath that has been guaranteed, when you remember that it is impossible for God to lie because in his very nature and his character, he is unchanging, now we can have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. My friends, this is written that you could have confidence. The word there is mighty strength. That your faith would begin to soar. That your faith would grow. That your faith would become more robust. Why? How? By simply being reminded that when God makes a promise, it cannot be assailed. Regardless of what you see around you. Well, what is the result of this strength then to persevere in the Lord? Ultimately, it results in security and comfort. It results in security and comfort. Verse 19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Well, this is the confident expectation of fulfillment in God's promise of the future. When he says, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. The, the idea is an anchor that is certain and an anchor that is firm. It's immovable. And this is a very anchor that you know. It's a, it's a nautical term. Uh, a ship's anchor. It doesn't take a whole lot of explanation. It appears two other times in Scripture, and both of them are in Acts chapter 27, where uh, Paul's dealing with the uh, ship and the storms on the way to Miletus, and he's talking about uh, the anchor, and he's giving instructions as to what they ought to do with the anchors. So how does an anchor work? Well, it's a device that's designed to keep a vessel in place. It's a device that's designed very simply to keep a vessel in place. And when is it needed? When there's tempests and storms, and currents, and winds, and waves that are battering that little vessel to take it away somewhere else. How it remains steady is not anything that it has in itself. It would get tossed away. But that anchor in the depths is what keeps that boat from capsizing, keeps it from drifting. Calvin writes, it's a striking likeness when he compares faith leaning on God's word to an anchor. For doubtless, as long as we sojourn in this world, we stand not on firm ground, but are tossed here and there, as it were, in the midst of the sea, and that indeed very turbulent. For Satan is incessantly stirring up innumerable storms, which would immediately upset and sink our vessel, were we not to cast our anchor fast in the deep. He goes on after talking about the anchor being cast downwards into the sea. And then he says, there's actually a better way to understand this anchor. And that's not that it's going down into the depths of the sea, but rather an anchor that has hope that rises upward and soars aloft. For in the world it finds nothing which it can stand, nor ought it cleave to created things, but to rest on God alone. My friends, very often in the storms and challenges of this life, you begin to find my vessel, my faith is being shaken. And what does it look like to have an anchor for your soul? It's, it's steadfastness when all of the things that would extinguish your trust in Christ come and assail you. And we just begin to think about what, what are some of the things that you might need a steady anchor for your soul? 
What about when your best friend walks away from the faith? Instead of trusting Christ, they now scoff. What about when you're fired from your job for your allegiance to Christ? What about when you just simply don't desire God? What about when you fail and you're spiritually weak and no matter how hard you try, the same sins beset you? What about when your child comes out as transgender? What about when your spouse no longer loves you and wants to abandon you in your marriage? Now friends, when you begin to think about all of the things that assail our faith, I just listed a few and there are dozens more easily that I could think of and that I know plague my soul and yours. Abraham is testifying to us that your faith will endure because it was a gift to you from God. You're saying ultimately the reason why Abraham endured in faith was because God made a promise to him. One of the most remarkable pictures in all of the Bible is in Genesis 15 when God makes his covenant promise to Abraham because when he swears that oath, it's not a bilateral covenant. There's not two parties that are both equally contributing to it. He swears only by himself. Can't even fathom this. This would be like doing a business deal with someone and we get down to the bottom where we're both supposed to sign it and only one person is signing it and they're saying, I'm guaranteeing it whether you hold up your end of the bargain or not. My friends, that was the salvation that God gave to Abraham. His faith had to endure because it was anchored by God. And so this hope then is is not only promised by God, he's the one that is providing that anchor, but then it's to translate into us that is the storms that come against our faith would assail us. We can trust that we would never fall away. That anchor is actually holding us fast as the anchor for our soul. How close does this anchor get us to God? Well, it says it's an, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, if you were a Jew, you understood this instantly. This was tabernacle language. This was temple language. This was talking about the veil and the Holy of Holies. And if there was one thing that you knew as a Jew, you knew that you don't belong anywhere near God. That was burned into your mind through that picture. You're corrupt. He's pure. You're base. He's holy. You're sinful. He's perfect. You're an idolater. He's, he's the one true God. You're dirty. He's clean. I mean, all through Leviticus, right? That's the message over and over and over. You're dirty and God is clean. And so you don't belong anywhere near him, and that's not merely an inference. He actually said it explicitly. Leviticus 16, the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. Moses, tell your brother not to get anywhere near that place so that he doesn't die except for on the Day of Atonement. So that place was to remind God's people that where God dwelt was a place that no man or woman could ever dwell with him because of their sinfulness. So now what's the metaphor that the author of Hebrews is drawing from? Well, Jesus obviously didn't just lift up the curtain and walk into the Holy of Holies. I mean, he is the Holy of Holies. Now, he is the very presence of God. Rather, he gave us access was the idea. Verse 20, this is where Jesus has gone as forerunner on our behalf. He went behind the curtain. And so you begin to immediately see here in the priesthood of Jesus how he's different from Aaron. Aaron would go into the Holy of Holies, and who else got to come with him? Nobody, right? It was just Aaron. Jesus goes into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. The text says it's as a forerunner. It's very similar language to where we read that he's the author of faith in Hebrews 12. But it's not the idea that he's the author as in just the one who founded or started it. It's rather that he's the one who goes first so that everyone else can come behind him. Picture someone in the woods with a machete clearing the path, the bushwhacker, so that people can come up behind them. And so Jesus has already entered this inner sanctuary, and he as our high priest brings us into that inner sanctum. And so this was the end of verse 20, as he had become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Say, how are we back to Melchizedek now? We were Melchizedek back in 5, 1 through 10. We took a pause. All of a sudden, he's reintroducing him. 
Well, Psalm 110, where we looked at a few weeks ago, where Melchizedek is introduced, I want to just read for you what, he, what the Lord says, and hear this verse again now, after what we just studied. Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, I even read over that a few weeks ago when we were in Psalm 110. Oh, the Lord's sworn he's not going to change his mind. You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. See, the author of Hebrews here is, is drawing out the significance of the surety of the promise of God for your salvation secured in Christ. And so for these saints, what he is recognizing is that they are tempted to drift and fall away from the Lord. And in that place of weakness... What he's saying to encourage their strength is not merely you guys need more faith, but rather you need to recognize where your faith originates. It's from a faithful God who promises. And when he makes a promise to you, he can't help but bring it about. Abraham and his faithfulness to Isaac all the way to the line of Christ and all of his people testifies that you can have great confidence before the Lord. And that confidence is to draw near all the way into the holy place where you are now invited by God into his presence. Will you pray with me? Lord, our faith is assailed in so many ways. Uh, Lord, we doubt you. Uh, I think of um, even this week, how many times you brought to mind areas that I simply uh, walk by my own understanding. And Lord, I know that's true of so many of us and uh, your people here. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would strip away uh, the false trusts that we have, uh, the areas that we still cling to our own understanding. Uh, Lord, for those of us who are battling with um, fears about our own faith, uh, Lord, give us mighty encouragement um, as we look to uh, your faithfulness to Abraham and now your faithfulness to us in Christ. In Jesus' precious name, amen. <laughs>